right now on Matter of Fact. Some of America's biggest companies are weighing in on who should have the right to vote. When it comes to the ballot box, what's the role for business in our politics? If they say, we're no longer gonna support people who are behind those, these bills, that's something that I think they'll pay attention to. And thousands of Native American women have simply vanished. If they would have took me serious, was, would there have been a chance of me holding her once again? Find out who plans to open these unsolved cases to prove someone cares. Then, what will it take to end the epidemic of police violence in America? We still need more political will. We examine the landmark law to hold police accountable and ask you to consider what's a reasonable use of force. Plus, food for thought. Whether you love crinkle cut, curly, or waffle fries, it doesn't matter. How climate change is catching up with the much-loved Spud. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. It's a battle that's been brewing since the 2020 presidential election that shattered turnout records. An election followed by weeks of baseless allegations of voter fraud culminating in a deadly riot at the U.S. Capitol. Across the country, Democrats and Republicans are locked in a tug of war over how Americans will cast their ballots in coming elections. At last count, 55 bills to restrict voting rights are moving through legislatures in 24 states. The GOP-backed bills ban ballot drop boxes, limit absentee voting, shorten early voting periods, and increase requirements for voter ID. A week ago, more than 100 corporate leaders attended a Zoom meeting to consider using their clout in the voting rights debate. Daniela Ballou Ayers helped organize that meeting. She's the co-founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project. Daniela Ballou Ayers, so nice to talk to you. Let's begin with this Zoom meeting. You helped organize it, and you were quoted in the New York Times as saying there was some kind of confusion among the executives. Can you explain that to me? It's a pleasure to be here, Soledad. There has been a real concern emerging that this wave of laws across the country are seeking to restrict voting access uh, for Americans, particularly voters of color. I think they saw the Georgia laws pass. They heard some reports on them in the press. Many of them stepped out. But then the press started reporting questions about were these how bad were these laws? Was this the appropriate role for CEOs? So the desire of that meeting was both to clear up any confusion about what was going on, what did the data say about these laws, what are the best practices in voting, and uh, how can they be effective voices for voting in this country? Are you optimistic that... Uh, what sometimes I think can be posturing by the business community can actually turn into true legislative force and action. We really believe that statements are just a start, not an end point. And we have to see business leaders who are ready to use their influence, their lobby influence, even their political contributions, their public voice to drive this issue. And ultimately, we need good legislation. Daniela Ballou Ayers, thank you for talking with me. Appreciate it. Such a pleasure to be here. There are skeptics about how business is getting involved in the voting rights debate. Judd Legum is an investigative reporter, also the founder of the newsletter Popular Information, which he describes as about politics and power. He's been covering the corporate involvement in the voting rights debate. 
Judd Legum. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for being with me. I'm a big fan of yours uh, on Twitter. You now have a recent posting that says, a Zoom call won't solve this problem. What do you mean? Well, I think it's, it's positive that corporations are now speaking out, but my concern about both the Zoom call and now there's been a letter that's released is that it's so broad uh, and it's so kind of vague in what they are calling for that it is unlikely to have any impact in the key states where these voting restrictions are moving very quickly. Uh, Texas, Michigan, Florida, Arizona. So let's talk about what happened in Georgia around voting rights legislation there. Coca-Cola, Delta, Home Depot all gave these statements in support of voting rights. I thought the Delta CEO statement was extremely strong because it said the whole thing, the whole enterprise was based on a lie, uh, which I think is true. It, it, it was based on Trump's false claims of voter fraud. But those statements were only released a week after the bills were signed into law. So I do think they could be doing more as far as the timeliness of how they're weighing in, but also, and what I've been trying to document in some of the reporting I've been doing is that these same companies, you know, whether it's Texas or Georgia or Florida, have a financial relationship with the politicians who are behind these bills. And that's really where their power lies. If they say, we're no longer going to support people who are behind those these bills, we're no longer going to send them a check every year, you know, that's something that I think they'll pay attention to. What do you think should be the role of corporate America in politics? I don't see a lot of value in corporations donating money to politicians through a PAC or even on the state level directly. I think for a lot of times what they, the reason why they make these donations is to get access. And I think it distorts really what a representative democracy should be about, which is that these people should be looking out for the people they represent. And in many cases, the people they represent work for these companies. So it's not like if you got rid of corporate donations that Delta wouldn't be an important voice in Georgia or Coca-Cola. It would. So I don't think that a lot of kind of the um, influence purchasing would be, would be one way to term, uh, term for it. Uh, I don't see that as a as a hugely beneficial part of our democratic process. Zedelegum, nice to talk to you. Real pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot. Next on Matter of Fact, anguish over loved ones gone missing. I pray for strength to go on, but it's so hard. Meet the woman opening the unsolved cases of Native American women and girls who have vanished, and later. Immigrants running toward border agents. Why aren't they running away? Welcome back to Matter of Fact. The first indigenous cabinet secretary in U.S. history is taking action on the unsolved cases of missing and murdered Native Americans. Deb Haaland, the Secretary of the Interior, says it's time to combat the epidemic of violence against Native people, especially women and girls. To do that, she set up a special investigative unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. According to the National Crime Information Center, about 1,500 American Indian and Alaska Native people are listed as missing, and thousands more are homicide victims with cases that have gone cold cases that have left family members waiting for answers. 
I've been having a lot of friends that um, have been gone missing and never found. For decades, indigenous women and girls have been disappearing, including Larissa Lone Hill, who lived on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. That was one of the recent ones before she went missing. Larissa went missing on October 3rd, 2016. Her mother, Lisa Lone Hill, left with little to hold on to. You know, I was just so mad and I was just writing down my feelings. Can you imagine your own daughter being missing? Try to imagine how painful that is. I pray for strength to go on, but it's so hard without my girl. I used to come out here and sit all the time, and there would always be an eagle. Two hours away on the Rosebud Reservation, Elizabeth Robidoux's daughter, Rescinda, went missing more than 20 years ago. She wanted to be in the army and fly. The 11-year-old's body was found in the trees. What I was told, she only had underwear on. It makes me mad. To know that she was out here, I don't know how long. Rescinda's murder remains unsolved. That's one thing we really want is justice for her. If you guys know of any place that you guys are at today that might need a drone. When we first met Matthew Lone Bear in January of 2018, he was orchestrating a search for his sister Olivia. The 32-year-old mother of five vanished from the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in Newtown, North Dakota. She was last seen driving a pickup truck. Lone Bear says authorities were slow in launching their search after she was reported missing. You look at all these people that want to step in with their boats that got sonar on them and they didn't allow them to. Despite his pleas, Lone Bear says it took months to have boats search a nearby lake. By that time, the seasons had changed. If they would have said yes to every agency that wanted to search the water and they worked with the family, we could have got that water searched six times already, but they don't want to for some reason. And now we're sitting with a frozen lake and wondering, look at all this effort we're throwing in to try to find this truck. What if it's sitting under the water the whole time? Tribal PD will have to answer for that. Nine months after she disappeared, volunteers using sonar found the truck with Olivia's body inside submerged in a lake less than a mile from her home. We want to make a protocol that will help other families and so that we don't got to jump through all the hoops that we had to do. To get rid of some of these excuses that law enforcement agencies and other agencies will, you know, have. We're trying to eliminate those so that way if someone goes missing on a reservation that, you know, it happens right away. You know, the law enforcement's um, all cohesive working together. State resources are available to come in reservations right away, not, not months down, not nine months down the road, right away. Back on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, Lisa Lonehill is still waiting for her daughter Larissa to come home. And so is Larissa's three-year-old daughter. When she sees her mom's picture, she says, oh, mommy, I miss you too much. Is she gonna be gone forever? The detectives say she's not with us no more. Maybe they gave up on her, but I didn't. And I refuse to believe that she's dead. She'll never be forgotten and I won't give up hope. 
The Justice Department launched Operation Lady Justice to combat violence and human trafficking of Native Americans. The task force lays out protocols for law enforcement to respond to these cases and works to improve data and information collection. Coming up, they pledge to protect and serve. They have to be above reproach. Above reproach or people lose their lives. Could a new law stop the epidemic of police violence? And still ahead, taking a chance. The images of those willing to risk it all to reach U.S. soil. It's all too a familiar cycle. Shooting, protest, trial. This week, protesters clash with police over the death of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, just outside of Minneapolis. The incident happened about 10 miles from where Officer Derek Chauvin is on trial for the death of George Floyd, a death that led to calls for police reform. Well, now Maryland lawmakers have passed what some are calling landmark legislation. Could it be a model for the rest of the country? Dr. Ray Sean Ray is a sociologist and David Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We first spoke with him right after the killing of George Floyd. Dr. Ray Sean Ray, so nice to see you again. Let's talk about the accomplishments of the legislation in Maryland. Well, the Maryland Police Accountability Act did a series of things. The big one coming out of it is that it, rep it repealed the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. The way I think about LIBOR is that it oftentimes leads to qualified immunity going on steroids. It makes it extremely difficult to remove bad apples. It provides a series of protections from them, even if they're convicted of other crimes while not on duty, and then also provides a series of protections when they're on duty. So that's the big thing. The other part, of course, that people are focusing on is the, the, the part that focuses on juveniles, that is now limiting the ability for juveniles to be tried as adults. Why is that important? Well, we know that disproportionately, young black males are the ones that are overwhelmingly tried as adults, about 80%, not just in the state of Maryland, but also across the country. Before I get to what was left on the table in that legislation that you were hoping to get and did not, I want you to first explain to me the use of force provision, because that's both important and kind of complicated. Well, in the state of Maryland, the bar for what was considered reasonable was lower than other places. They have now increased that, making it where it's not simply where an officer can say that, uh, that they were pursuing a suspect, but instead their life or others have to definitely be in physical danger for them to be able to use force. There are lots of things that were left on the table, didn't make it into the legislation. Can you talk about what was left behind? I think the big thing that was left off is failure to report. This is essentially a whistleblower's uh, doctrine. Like, we would expect for officers to blow the whistle um, if they see bad behavior. So part of what some of the senators were trying to do is they were trying to create uh, a, uh, a, a failure to report legislation that penalizes people who don't report. And then the big part added on to that was to protect those officers by having a statewide agency or investigative group that receives the complaints to investigate it. Do you think that this legislation in Maryland is a model for the rest of the country? I think 
part of what Maryland has done can be used as a model. We still need more political will, but dealing with the law enforcement bill of rights is big. Dealing with juveniles not being tried as adults is big. There are a lot of states getting on board with that. And then mandating at the state level that we have community oversight boards is big, but it's not just about mandating, it's about the implementation of that. And so, yes, I do think that Maryland can be used as a model. I think that the state legislature should be uh, applauded for what they've done, but they also realize there's a lot more work to do. Dr. Rayshon Ray, thank you, as always. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. When we return, our exclusive viewfinder, the faces of immigration, young children crossing the border on their own. To stay up to date with our top stories, sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe at matteroffact.tv. Several months we've been reporting on the increasing number of migrants crossing the southern border. Analysts say that number has reached about 600 a day. Most are teenagers coming from Central America seeking asylum. Dudley Althouse has been covering immigration issues for more than three decades, and in this week's Viewfinder, he describes his most recent visit to the border. We are down in McAllen, Texas, across from Reynosa, Mexico. Uh, the people that we saw coming across that had been picked up by Border Patrol uh, were a lot of uh, parents, or, or adults at least, with very young children. These kids have had a rough going the whole way up. They left very rough places, and they've had a rough trip through through Central America and through Mexico. They're, they're pretty tough kids. A lot of these are teenagers, uh, and they've been migrating forever. Young teenagers out of Central America have been migrating for the 30 years I've covered it. What's really different about this wave, rather than trying to evade Border Patrol, people are crossing and turning themselves in. And so the Border Patrol is used to like chasing down people trying to evade them. And now this is more of a, a situation of processing people and a lot of people. And, and a lot of them are coming across in a very, in a very small portion of the border. Uh, and so it's instead of like law enforcement, it's more like logistics and processing. I think it takes a toll on the Border Patrol as well. Still ahead. A question close to the heart of every fast food aficionado. You want fries with that? How climate change is creating a potato predicament for fry lovers everywhere. Finally, a question close to the heart of every fast food aficionado. You want fries with that? Research verifies that most Americans would say yes, yes, they do. According to the Washington State Potato Research Lab, which I did not know existed, the average American consumes 34 pounds of French fries each year. Most of those fries are made using one specific variety of potato, the russet Burbank. The biggest producers, Washington State, Idaho, and Wisconsin. Now, the russet Burbank potato needs cool and wet conditions to grow. Climate scientists warn that the trend toward warmer and drier weather could mean fewer fries on your plate. Warmer temperatures affect the starch content of the potato, changing the way it tastes and fries. But don't despair. Researchers at the U.S. Department of Agriculture are working on more resilient varieties. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about corporate America's role in the voting rights debate, how one woman plans to open the unsolved cases of Native women who vanished, our look at landmark police reform laws, 
or our viewfinder with exclusive photos from the border with a unique perspective on the plight of child immigrants. Just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.